Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So much in the news this week we need to share with you, right, Peter? I'm ready. Let me start with this. A 71-year-old man was charged in the largest seizure of illegal reptiles in New York history. So this guy had 292 snakes and turtles at his home, Mm. including three highly venomous and deadly king cobras. And by the way, one of these king cobras was over 10 feet long. Plus, he had six gila monsters. Do you know what a gila Mm. monster is, Peter? Kind of. Huge venomous lizard. In addition, he had 17 bog turtles, 28 blandings turtles, 53 wood turtles, two painted turtles, six snapping turtles, and 180 four spotted turtles and 20 boxes of various species of turtle eggs were seized. This is all according to the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation officials. Many of the animals seized are considered endangered. So this guy was charged with a series of violations, including illegally possessing and transporting venomous reptiles, possessing an endangered species without a permit, and 283 counts of illegally possessing a wild animal as a pet. Also charged with nine counts of torturing and injuring animals and failure to provide adequate food and water to these animals. Also By the way, he was charged with felony first-degree reckless endangerment and misdemeanor possession of a loaded firearm in a motor vehicle. Oh, that's shocking. Right. So he faces a maximum fine of $104,000 and up to 33 years in prison if convicted on all these charges. And needless to say, I hope he is. You know, that's an amazing story. To me, one of the unusual things about it is the advanced age of this guy. You know, 71 years old. Don't don't the guys who are into this, don't they grow out of this at some point? Or I don't know. It just seems weird to me. Okay, Lori, you know, I like to follow what's happening in industry. And I also like to eat. So I want to tell you about uh, this new report. It comes from a global consultancy firm called A.T. Kearney. And they are reporting that the meat, most of the meat that people will be eating by the year 2040 will not be from animals, but it will actually be grown in vats. That's so cool. Now, the technology they are pointing to is cultured meat. It's produced when they extract a cell from a living animal. So they start with an animal cell and then they grow it outside of the body using this bioreactor. The result is meat, if you can call it that, or meat-like substance, which uh, is supposed to be very similar or identical to uh, conventional meat. Now, why is this happening? It's from the growing awareness of of the environmental consequences of conventional meat farming methods and also from an increased sensitivity to the cruelty of the commercial production of meat and what happens to the animals is horrible. The study says that the large-scale livestock industry is viewed by many as an unnecessary evil, and we agree with that. All in all, cultured meat and new meat replacement products are going to disrupt the billion-dollar conventional meat industry with all its supplier companies, and we are very excited about that. You bet we are. Yeah. Now, is it going to be palatable and appetizing to your mature vegan? Like, I don't know if I want to taste this stuff at all. I'm satisfied with my vegetables and my soybeans and stuff, you know? 
How about you? You want to eat some uh, cultured meat? If it tastes too much like meat, I'm not going to want to eat it. Yeah. Well, the market is not you and me or people like us. Right. The market is everyone else who wants to cut down on their meat, help the environment. And that's a much bigger segment than your uh, fully actualized vegans. You're absolutely right. And those people still have a taste for meat. Right. Right. Anyway, I think it's a good development. Okay, Lori, here's another one. Two smugglers, they have been caught and arrested in Orange County, California. That's right in our backyard. They are Chinese nationals. They were pulled over for speeding. And the astute officers suspected something was going on. They were questioned and uh, found no drugs, which is what they were looking for. Instead, they found dried swim bladders of 132 totoaba weighing roughly 104 pounds. Now, these totoaba, they are fish, and these bladders are used in traditional Chinese medicine, and they're very valuable. In fact, all these bladders were estimated to be worth $3.76 million. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Now, why do we care? We care because the totoaba is found only in one place, on the earth, and that is the Sea of Cortez. And that's where they are hunted for these very valuable bladders. Unfortunately, the acute little vaquita, which is the smallest porpoise, and there are only about 20 individuals left in the wild, they are bycatch of this illegal fishing, and they are about to go extinct. Bycatch meaning accidentally caught in the net. That's right. And they don't really care about them at all. Right. Uh, as we have discussed the Mexican government and other uh, non-government agencies are working very hard to uh, police this area, but it's really a very dire situation. Lori, a little shout out to the Vancouver Humane Society. It's asking the uh, Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, that's the CVMA, to be consistent with their stated position and to speak out against cruel rodeo events like at the Calgary Stampede and rodeos across Canada. It's very popular in Canada. The Humane Society points out that the CVMA's own position statement on animals being used in entertainment and recreation states that it opposes activities, contests, or events that have a high probability of causing injury, distress, or illness, and also that animals should not be forced to perform actions or tasks that result in physical or mental distress or discomfort. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly that is not what occurs at rodeos, right? Right. So Peter Fricker, he is representing the Vancouver Humane Society. He said that the CVMA needs to live up to its principles and take a public stand against rodeo cruelty, and we agree with that. And if you want to do something about this, you can go to the Vancouver Humane Society website and write a letter to the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association. They will guide you on who to send it to and some ideas of what to put in your letter or email, and that's a real uh, easy thing to do. I have a terribly sad and infuriating story, Peter, and a good example of how innocent animals pay for the stupidity of humans. In Oregon, near a popular boat launch on one of the state's lakes, certain humans thought it would be a good idea to leave food out for a two-year-old bear. In addition, people were posting selfies on social media with that same bear. So what did the Oregon wildlife officials do? They killed the little two-year-old black bear. 
Oh, wait, excuse me. Killing is too harsh of a word. According to the Statesman Journal, the bear was, quote, lethally removed from the area after state officials determined the wild animal had become habituated to that area. And I will just tell you, under Oregon law, it's illegal to scatter food, garbage, or any other attractant so as to knowingly constitute a lure, enticement, or attractant for potentially habituated wildlife. So why didn't they go after these humans who broke the law by leaving the food out for the bear? Yeah, what a sad story. You know, I read that report too, and it just sounds like a lot of people were doing it. I know, but you know what? Even a better question, if the bear was too habituated, why couldn't they transport the bear to a sanctuary? Why yeah. did they have to kill him? That, yeah, that's the question that is uh, not addressed in this. That is the tragic part of this. I mean, I understand a bear that is too habituated can pose a danger to humans, right? So they can't just let him be. But wouldn't a sanctuary be that's, a good option? Yes, you better believe it. And remember, please don't feed the bears. This is why this happens. Right, exactly couple of whaling stories, Lori. This as reported by the Animal Welfare Institute. We have a lot of good friends over there. They are reporting that this season there will be no whaling coming out of Iceland, which is uh, great news. Now, this does not represent a change in their year-to-year policy, but the Icelandic government is saying that their whaling ships are not in a good state of repair, so they are going to take this season off. Well, actually, there may be other things going on behind the scenes that they are not sharing with us and uh, having to do with whether permits are granted. But either way, we are happy that they are going to suspend whaling for this year. Now, Iceland, their whaling quotas are not approved by the International Whaling Commission, the IWC, which is the primary international organization responsible for conservation and management of whales. They are just a rogue nation, but we're going to continue putting the pressure on Iceland however we can. Now, Japan, Japan is another story. As we reported a few months ago, they decided to leave the IWC. They have been battling the IWC for decades, actually, and uh, they've decided they are just going to start their own commercial whaling program. Previously, they were claiming that their whaling was done for research purposes, which everyone knew was uh, nonsense. Well, they claim they're going to kill 383 whales this year in their exclusive economic zone, which is about 200 miles from their shores. Now, why are they doing this? As we know, the Japanese government strongly supports the industry. The Japanese people hardly consume any whale meat at all. So it's a real mystery as to why they defend this industry so strongly. We'll see what happens. This is the first season they're doing this. And uh, I have to say, people are nervous and uh, concerned about this whole situation, Lori. Very sad to report a two-year-old boy died from complications of E. coli, and three other children became ill from E. coli linked to contact with animals at the San Diego County Fair last month. So this fair has all the kinds of exploitative, abusive, animal-related events you might imagine there might be at a fair, including pig races and livestock shows abusing calves, rabbits, pigeons, and goats. 
In fact, 2,900 animals were featured at this fair. Most common form of transmission for E. coli in this situation is the fecal oral route. So children likely touched surfaces or animals contaminated with E. coli and then put their hands in their mouths. So just another reason not to patronize these fairs or kinds of events that exploit and abuse animals. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a big investigation going on, and there's going to be a committee and a commission, and uh, nothing's going to change. That's right. right. Yeah, That's right. Yep. Nothing's going to change. Okay, Lori, we are going to continue our roundup of animal news after the break. There's a lot going on this week, and we are going to go to Ireland and see what's happening there. Stick around. You are listening to Animals Today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Lori. Peter. Okay, more hot animal news. And, uh, you know, greyhound racing is still quite popular in Ireland. Although it is shrinking a little bit, it is heavily subsidized by their Department of Agriculture. Anyway, there's a big backlash because recently there was a TV documentary reporting that thousands of dogs are killed each year related to this industry. Uh, This was called RTE Investigates, Greyhounds Running for Their Lives. And uh, in this investigative uh, report, they stated that 5,987 greyhounds were slaughtered in 2017 because they failed to make qualification times or their performance declined. Isn't that incredible? Tragic. The program also reported the use of performance-enhancing drugs, not surprising, and also EPO, erythropoietin, which, as you know, increases the red blood cell count and dangerously thickens their blood. And as I mentioned earlier, the Department of Agriculture, they are going to give almost 17 million euros to the Irish Greyhound Board this year, which is amazing. And there's a response to this as expected. The Irish Greyhound Board blamed the abuses on an irresponsible minority within the industry that it vowed to root out. Shocking, right? And here's another element of this, Lori, and that is the dogs that die or are euthanized on the racetrack. Nearly 250 greyhounds uh, were euthanized uh, on humane grounds last year, and many just simply died from sudden death. Reminds you of the horse racing deal here in the States, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah. And just to remind you here in the States, greyhound racing is diminishing significantly, and most of the tracks have now been closed, but we all are pushing hard to uh, close the final remaining dog racing tracks. Okay, I have some good news to report. You know, famous Mayo Clinic. I know. Mayo Clinic, right? Mayo Brothers. (laughs) Has ended its use of live animals in training emergency medicine residents. A little late to the party, I would say. Exactly. (laughs) Apparently, credit goes to the Organization Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We like them. They filed a complaint asking the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service to investigate Mayo Clinic's use of 
pigs in once a year emergency medical training. This complaint alleged that Mayo Clinic's use of live animals violated the Federal Animal Welfare Act. Mayo Clinic declined to comment about the details or how the pigs are used each year. According to the Physicians Committee Group, 96% of surveyed emergency medicine residency programs in the U.S. and Canada do not use any animals for any aspect of that training. So really, this is long overdue. Dr. John Pippin of the Physicians Committee, he's been on the show numerous times. I think he's just great. He said... It was the right move for Mayo Clinic to modernize its curriculum. Human-based training methods can better prepare residents to perform life-saving procedures. In a statement from Mayo Clinics, it read, in part, These decisions, meaning to stop using live animals in their training, are always based on what is the best interest of our patients and trainees, and we will continue to assess our curriculum so that tomorrow's doctors can provide the safest, highest quality care to patients everywhere. No, their decision was not based on what is the best interest for patients and trainees. Their decision was based on the complaint filed against them. It's so funny. It is very transparent. And the other thing about that statement that strikes me is that absolutely no regard is given to the animals at all. It's zero. It's not like a, right. it's not like a balancing act at all. Right. So that was another interesting part of that. You know. Also, again, credit to our friends at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, Maine Medical Center based in Portland, Maine, which serves the entire state as well as northern New England, will no longer be using live animals in its emergency medicine residency program. Program, and they will now exclusively use high-quality non-animal training methods, which are available in the center's simulation lab. Isn't that better in a simulation lab where you have human patient simulators that replicate human anatomy and physiology rather than learning on a completely different species of animal? Yeah, these models are very realistic and uh, widely available now. Yeah, don't you wish we had these simulation-based medical training when we went to medical school, Peter? And especially in our residency programs. I, listeners might not know, Peter and I are both eye doctors. We're ophthalmologists. We're eye surgeons. On people. On people. And in my residency program, we practice surgery on pig's eyes. Yeah, we did rabbits. How valuable was that to you? Not at all, right? Well, it would have been better to have a realistic model, I'll say that. Okay. So anyway, I believe there are now 11 remaining emergency medicine residency programs in the U.S. and Canada that uses live animals. All the other programs use modern human-based training methods, which accurately replicate human anatomy, and that also allow for repeated practice. New research shows there are hundreds of sharks and rays who become tangled in plastic waste in the world's oceans. The most common plastic to trap the sharks and rays was abandoned fishing gear. They gave it an example, and I saw the video online, of a short fin mako shark with fishing cord wrapped tightly around it. One of the scientists said the shark had clearly continued growing after becoming entangled so the rope, which was covered in barnacles, had dug into the shark's skin and damaged its spine. It was so sad to see the video. She goes on to say it's important to understand the range of threats facing these species, which are among the most threatened in the oceans. Additionally, there's a real animal welfare issue because entanglements can cause pain, suffering, and even death. 
Other waste in our oceans include strapping bands used in packaging, polythene bags, and rubber ties. You know, Peter, polyethylene is by far the most popular type of plastic used in the world today. Most of your household items that we use in our everyday lives comes from polyethylene, like sandwich bags, cling wrap. It's the coatings that you see on fruit juice boxes. The plastic wrapping around the meat or chicken or ground beef you might buy is made of polyethylene. Anyway, just so you know, in the USA, only 8% of plastic is recycled. The rest ends up in landfills, or it remains uncollected and can wash into the sea. There are trillions of pieces of plastic in the ocean, and it's estimated that there are 8 million tons being added every single year. As you already know, plastic has harmful consequences on the sea life. And not only can these marine animals get tangled in it and cause severe damage or death to the animal, but plastic breaks down into small particles called microplastics. And fish and seals, turtles, and other marine animals swim along and they eat these microplastics because they mistake them for food. And then you have the smaller fish are eaten by the larger fish, and these harmful chemicals keep moving up the food chain, which then can lead to poisoned marine life, including birds and other animals who live off the sea. So this ocean trash is really having harmful consequences on the sea life and everyone. So how can you help reduce plastic pollution in our beautiful oceans? Take litter home with you. Don't leave it behind. Limit your use of plastic bottles. Purchase a reusable bottle rather than a bunch of plastic bottles. In addition, limit your use of plastic in general, like plastic bags, plastic ware, coffee cup lids, and recycle your plastic so less end up in landfills. Don't use microbeads. You know what microbeads are, Peter? Oh, yeah. Those are the tiny little plastic uh, spheres that can be used as part of cosmetics like scrubs and, uh, and bath products. They end up in the seas as well. Exactly. So when it comes to plastic use, reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Easy to remember and with little effort, easy to do. Thanks for listening to Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. There is somewhat of a craze occurring in Japan involving live otters. That's right, otters. There are otter-themed cafes, otters who have become internet stars, and otters becoming pets. What is going on out there? To explain this, I'm pleased to welcome Ethan Wolf. He is with World Animal Protection where he serves as Exotic Pets Campaign Manager. And this campaign is called Wildlife Not Pets. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you for having me on. Please describe what is happening to the otters and with the otters in Japan, and how recent is this phenomenon? River otters, the um, Eurasian um, and, and Asian otters are being captured, and they're being sold into the pet industry. Um, so people, particularly in Thailand and Japan, are, are, have them in their homes. They're trying to essentially make them cats and dogs. 
Um, and then in, in Japan, there's also this new thing of like the cat cafes that we have in the United States, these otter cafes. Uh, so you can go in, um, you're not sitting with them so much as you're able to uh, go into a, a smaller room with them and interact with them, or they'll be in an enclosure, a plexiglass enclosure, and there'll be a small hole cut out where they can stick their paw and you can give them uh, pieces of food. Um, so it, this, is, this has started to pick up in the last couple of years, um, mostly in the past two or three years. And it says more otters are put, and otter videos are posted on social media, it's just further this craze and further the growth of these otter cafes in Japan. Ethan, just so uh, listeners can understand uh, the sounds in the background, we're speaking with you. You are in Manhattan, uh, where the World Animal Protection Headquarters are located, right? And we're just hearing regular Manhattan noises back there, right? Yes, I apologize. There's a police car going by, but yes, uh, even uh, on high floors, you can still hear it in our building. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, Asian otters in the wild so we can put them in context. Uh, Where do they live? How do they live? What, What are they like? So there's, there's five species of Asian otters, um, the smooth-coated, the Eurasian, the Asian small-clawed, the hairy-nosed, and then sea otters um, that probably most of us in the United States are familiar um, with living in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but these, uh, the, the river otters, they're, they're semi-aquatic animals, um, so they spend most of their life in and around water. Uh, the small clawed otter in particular actually will grab food uh, with their paws first and not their mouths. Um, but this is, this is just sort of the, the distinctions between the individual otter species. Uh, but in general, they're highly social animals. They live in large family groups, up to even 20 different individuals. Um, the parents form lifelong monogamous bonds, and their diet is primary, primarily crab, um, some snails, mollusks, insects, and small fish. Um, so their birth, they're, they're, the younger in, in the, the cubs, are, they're in dens, um, and this is actually how some of the poachers come and find them in order to take them to sell them to the exotic pet industry. Um, you also do have um, otters who are captured because they're um, playing or swimming or eating um, in the rice paddy fields, and the hunters will either shoot them or capture them and then just sell them on into the industry. Okay, so this is uh, another flavor of that wonderful exotic pet industry. Um, How do these otters, once they're captured, um, uh, and they're not really bred so much? Is that let's get that uh, squared away? These are mostly live. These are mostly captured otters. Um, Overwhelmingly, they're captured otters. There, there are some attempts to breed them, um, although our investigation found. Um, that those attempts have, haven't really worked out. Uh, what we believe is some of the otters who are being identified as having been bred in captivity are in fact wild-caught otters. Once they are obtained, uh, what's the supply chain to get to their final destination? Uh, how do they transport it? So they'd be transported in, in a carrier in the same way one might, might transport a cat or a dog or in some sort of enclosure, um, but it, it depends on what part of the trade they're really ending up in. So um, in Thailand, where it's illegal to have, capture, breed, otherwise um, possess an otter, uh, uh, as our documentary that we made sort of shows, 
they're, they're essentially being sold in, a, in an animal market. So it, they're just, it's an area where you can start to purchase other animals as well. Um, but some of them, the ones particularly uh, from Indonesia who are ending up in Japan where there aren't native otters, uh, those are being transported, we believe, um, through some of the same uh, lines of smuggling as other animal species. They're, they're ending up there, while there is some extent um, the ability to export them, um, at least that's what some of the otter um, traders tell us. They're going in very small numbers that the numbers of otters in Japan can't, can't possibly reflect the few that can be sent out of Indonesia. Okay, so there is Ill- illegal uh, trading, and that means that there's organized crime involved, most likely, eh? That's I believe. We don't have direct evidence of that, but considering organized crime's heavy involvement in wildlife trafficking, it, it's a good chance that, that they're heavily involved in this as well. Describe a little bit this cultural phenomenon that is, uh, I guess, mostly in Japan uh, with this otter craze. What's it like there? I would say that in Japan in particular, there's starts to be a bit of um, a fascination with an individual species, and so that fascination extends into having them in captivity, um, and it's a belief that they're loving the animal by having the animal there, but it's also just sort of the rise of social media and influencers on social media where they're, they're posting these videos, they're posting photos, they're organizing different groups of other people who also have otters as pets. And so the more videos and the more likes, it just becomes a more popular item. Now, Japan, if you live in a city, it's going to be harder to keep these animals in your home, um, particularly if you have a small apartment. So that's the rise of the the otter cafes. Um, So tourists or or just someone who wants to interact with an animal, particularly a wild animal, can then go there and have that experience. They can take their selfies and then post them. And it's just all feeding more and more to more people wanting otters. Now, indeed, they are quite cute, but they're really not suitable as pets at all, correct? Absolutely. These are animals that are, they're intelligent animals. They, as I said earlier, they do live in these family groups, so they do need that type of interaction with their own kind. So even in these cafes or if someone has more than one otter in their home, it's still not going to be the same sort of interaction that they would have if they were in the wild. The domestication process, which is a process that takes many years and even decades or more, and, and so even if these otters were captive bred, they're still not domestic animals. There's a huge amount of animal welfare concerns, uh, particularly the amount of time that they would spend in water, because in, in, these ca- in these otter cafes, rather, and in homes, they're just not going to have that kind of access to water that they would naturally have. Maybe they'll get a little swim in a bathtub. Um, there was an otter who was seen, did have a small area to swim in a cafe in Japan, but that otter was actually just essentially pacing, swimming from one side to the other, touching one side, and then going back, and just as a repetitive uh, behavior. In addition, you know, it's fairly easy to buy cat and dog food, but otters, as I said, they, they eat um, mostly aquatic life and it's snails and fish um, and moths, and, uh, but in homes and in otter cafes, they're being fed things like cat food, cheese, cat treats, 
just just a totally inappropriate diet, which then leads to them having other issues like um, with their teeth. Um, and so we did document otters who had been surrendered to a rescue group, and and the otters just had horrible teeth problems. Either they've been ground down as an attempt to make them bite less, um, or they're having uh, exposed root canals, just, just ongoing problems. So you can watch the video and read the report on our website, worldanimalprotection.us. You just go to the tab for um, animals in the wild. Um, you'll find it there. Um, and that, that's a really great resource. We also have a pledge on our website um, not to buy or keep an, an, an animal, an exotic animal, as a pet. And so we're asking everyone to sign on to that as well. Um, the important thing is that I want to end with is Eurasian otters, who I only very briefly mentioned, are already on Appendix 1 of CITES, the Convention International Trade and Endangered Species. We are working to uplist other um, otter species from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1. Um, and what that really means is um, once they're at Appendix 1, the only trade in them is it, heavily restricted um, as opposed to Appendix 2, which is much lower uh, restrictions and, and really only indicates that they're possibly threatened with extinction as opposed to they definitely are threatened with extinction. Yeah. So. Um, we're also starting to ask our supporters if they're on Instagram or Facebook or, or Twitter and they see someone post these videos with an otter um, to report them um, and then also to let us know about that as well so we can track to see what sort of action social media um, companies are taking and also see just the growth or, or decline of these animals being posted on social media. Ethan Wolf with World Animal Protection, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, thank you so much for having me. More with animals today after this break. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Legislation aiming to address cat decline is in the news again. In New York State, bills have passed both houses to prohibit declawing of cats without a valid medical reason. Leading this effort is New York State Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show today. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. So, Linda, I don't know if you remember this, but you appeared on the show back in February 2015, talking oh about this. Goodness. Yeah, talking about the same topic. Why don't you remind listeners what your interest is in cat declawing and what has happened legislatively in the past four years? Okay, that's really, really funny to remember that. Um, since I came to Albany as an assembly member, which is 13 years, I've uh, focused a, a lot of my attention on animal welfare issues. And so about four or five years ago, I met uh, the Paw Project people, Dr. Jenny Conrad, sure. and Jim Jenfold, and they told me about what they were trying to do in California, which has been Kathy Klein. Right. And so I said, I would love to do that in New York State. And, you know, I saw the movie that they put out. It's, it's the documentary. It's horrific. It's, and I myself have two kitties. And so I knew exactly what they were talking about when they described the horror of decline. Right. And just in case any of our listeners are unaware of what cat decline really means, please describe why decline cats is cruel and not of any benefit to the cats or their guardians. Yes. Well, people get their cats declawed when they value their furniture more than their cats. And what happens is that people get cats, and the cats do what cats do, which is scratch. They have to scratch. They use their claws to express emotion. If they are outside, they need their claws. And it is not just removing the nail. It's an amputation to the first, um, on a human would be on the first knuckle. Right. And it's it's horrific, and the consequences can be great on the cat's physical and emotional life. And so people have said, oh, I spent a lot of money for that couch or, you know, that chair, and I really don't want cats scratching, so I'm going to declaw the cat. This is for the human's supposed need, and it takes into consideration nothing about the cat. And there are veterinarians throughout the state who do this practice. It costs a lot of money, so it helps the lines their pockets. And they also don't like to be told what to do. And actually, the bill passed both houses. And from what I hear, veterinarians are furiously calling the governor's office trying to get him to veto this bill. There, there are other veterinarians who are stand solidly on on the side of the cats and are are lobbying to get him to sign the bill. But it's astounding that 
even after we got this vote done in the Senate and the Assembly, veterinarians are still trying to um, prevent this bill from becoming law. Yeah, it's it's really astounding, and people might be surprised to hear this. And you're, the biggest opponents to this bill include the New York State Veterinary Medical Society, which is incredible. And it, it, it really um, makes me feel jaded that the profession that I thought, you know, was so marvelous because it takes, I thought, a special person to communicate with animals and, and all of that are the ones who are disregarding the bad effects of decline. They put up 10 million different arguments, I'm exaggerating, and we knocked down each one of them. Uh, they even acted like they were human doctors for humans saying, oh, immunocompromised people should not have a, a cat with claws, and that's exactly not true. Right. Um, and even the CDC and the NIH do not recommend declawing. Right. Well, the Veterinary Medical Society does tend to protect their financial interests. But anyway, congratulations on getting this legislation to this point. And I read it's now in the governor's hands. What exactly? Not quite there. Okay. Um, You know, after um, two houses pass a a bill, um, it gets sent to the governor. And when he gets it, he has 10 days to decide whether to sign it or veto it. It hasn't been sent to him yet. So can you tell us if it's passed, what exactly it would do? So this bill would outlaw uh, cat declawing, except in the case of medical necessity. If there's a tumor, if there's an injury, so it's not for cosmetic reasons. It's not for human preference needs. It's only if it's necessary um, from a medical standpoint to declaw a cat. Just to repeat what you said, really this is a procedure declawing for human conveniences. And I want my listeners to know, if they don't already know, there are alternatives that will prevent cats from scratching in unwanted places, correct? Absolutely. And when in the city of Los Angeles, they passed the same uh, provision like 10 years ago. And in the years following that, they found that the rate of return of cats who were like misbehaving or not acclimating went down. And I believe that's because when owners say, oh, I'm going to declaw the cat, they didn't try other methods. When the cat was declawed, it developed other behaviors that the owner didn't like. So they were often returned to the shelter. That's what happens. Cats, you know, go litter box avoidance. They do other unhelpful behavior that owners don't like. So they return them. So after L.A. passed the law saying you cannot declaw a cat, owners went to other methods, for example, vinyl sheaths, scratching posts, behavior modification, which all work. The last resort should have been, before this, uh, declawing. The last, but it seems like it's always the first. And in New York State, that will no longer be true. They won't be able to do it at all. Now, many countries around the world have banned declawing, but this would be the first statewide ban. Is that correct? Yes, it would be. How yeah. exciting. Oh, it's it's beyond. I've I've uh, struggled to get this passed and we the veterinarians have been successful in delaying it, but not forever and we passed it this year and I believe it will be law. Linda, you're one of our most dedicated legislators for our animals anywhere in our country. What other animal welfare issues are on your radar screen? 
Well, I have a, a bill that I'm working on to um, end the sale of cats, dogs, and bunnies in um, pet stores because uh, that's a way to help end the puppy mill to pet store pipeline, which exists and is a horrible thing. So uh, we'd have shelters show their animals in a pet store um, and people could adopt them instead of buying pets for thousands of dollars who are genetically damaged because of the the breeding process and it's a terrible situation for the animals that are forced to be pregnant at all times and then keep delivering more and more um, animals so we're trying to cut into that by decreasing the availability of puppy mill cats and dogs new york state assemblywoman linda rosenthal thank you very much Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.